So, you know, the, uh, the season of Christmas always reminds me of my grandmother Claire's house and all of the, the stuff that she used to bake. You know, the cookies, uh, the cinnamon rolls, uh, the apple pies, the peach pies uh, from the fruit that we've harvested earlier that year from the orchard, and the bread, all the bread, right? And the way the smell of that would just, just engulf that tiny little farmhouse kitchen until it leaked out, and you could catch a whiff of it even before you got to the front door. You guys like the smell of fresh baked bread? Yeah, me too. And so along with the bread, Christmas always calls to mind, as I said, you know, the ideas of family and, and food and, and fruit pies baking. And, you know, all of these collected memories are kind of the catalyst that I guess maybe I use to approach the text for today. Two texts, actually, again this week. The first from our gospel focus for the year, which is what? Matthew. Thank you. The gospel of Matthew. Who said Luke? <laughs> uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, originally, I'll talk to you later. Or, originally written to demonstrate the legitimacy of Jesus' family tree as the Messiah uh, and his fulfillment of God's ancestral promise to the house and the lineage of David. And then a reading from Psalm 132 about that ancestor David himself, uh, who's going to tell us of his love for the house of God and not just for the physical place where he went to worship and offer sacrifices, but hinting prophetically at the promise of a time when the dwelling place of God would be gloriously and physically present in the person of a Messiah. One who would feed his people on the bread of heaven and cultivate them into fruitful branches for the kingdom until the sweet fragrance of the gospel reaches the full number of the family that he's calling to himself. And so our two readings today are from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, and that's our first reading. I'm going to force you guys to read something today you've probably never read before, but I know you skip over this part. So listen for the voice of the Spirit. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Are these names sounded familiar? And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, 
and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And our second reading, Psalm 132, the first 11 verses. And the psalmist writes, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we have heard of it in Ephrathah. We have found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. And let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on my throne. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you uh, for this faithful lineage of our Savior. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the faithful witness of Scripture. We know, Lord, sometimes it's so easy to spiritualize these things, we forget uh, that Jesus was a, a real man from a real family. Uh, we thank you that he is not just your son, but he is a human. Uh, and so we thank you, Lord, that together he is the God-man, uh, fully God and fully man together. And we worship and adore him this morning and ask you to teach us uh, about him and allow us to see his face in your word. In his name we pray, amen. So, you know, in the life, uh, lifetime of King David, about 900 years or so before the time of Christ. You know, there were no church buildings, of course, like we have today. Uh, even the, the temple hadn't been built yet. Now, the house of worship that David had in mind here is the portable tabernacle. And that word tabernacle just means tent or, or dwelling place. And if you remember, the tabernacle would be set up in the midst of the camp with each of the 12 tribes of Israel surrounding it. And it was the, the place of God's presence with his people a place where he showed himself as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And of course, God didn't need a house for himself, right? But the tabernacle would be a sign for the Israelites that God would be with them tangibly and visibly all throughout the Exodus and into the establishment of the Davidic kingdom in the Promised Land. And that tabernacle whose uh, layout and furniture and rituals were all designed to point ahead to the promise of a Messiah. And in fact, the Apostle John, in drawing on this imagery, instead of giving us a detailed birth narrative of Jesus, uh, like Matthew and Luke did, uh, says of Christ's entrance into the world in John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and, and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He set up His tent among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so today... Uh, in that psalm I read you, when the psalmist says today, Behold, we have heard of it in Ephrathah. We have found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go 
to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. In a very real sense, he's, he's saying prophetically that he's longing for and looking for and lovingly awaiting not just a time when David can step through the tent flap of an earthly tabernacle to worship God, but instead anticipating the future incarnation of God's glory and the birth of a Messiah who would step into us, who would step into humanity in a birth that could only happen in one place, in Bethlehem, or as it was also called, Ephrathah. And the Bible tells us uh, that in the words of the Old Testament prophet Micah, Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, the prophet says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you I will bring a ruler for my people whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. The Lord will abandon his people to their enemies till the woman who is pregnant has her son. But when he comes, he will rule his people with the strength that comes from the Lord and with the majesty of the Lord God himself. And people all over the earth will acknowledge his greatness and he will bring peace. So who's that about? Je yes, yeah, Jesus, thank you. And so, so we have the who that David has in mind here, right? We know it's, it's Jesus, it's our great savior. And we know the where, right? We know Bethlehem. But do you ever wonder why? Why Bethlehem? Why would God choose Bethlehem to be the place where Jesus would enter humanity and pitch his tent and cause all of his glory to come to dwell in the flesh of a newborn baby? Why of all the cities and towns and villages in Palestine did the Lord choose Bethlehem, Ephrathah, as Jesus' birthplace? Because it wasn't because it was any political or commercial or culturally significant city of the day. Uh, if, humanly speaking, a site selection committee had been appointed, uh, the name of Bethlehem would not have made the list at all, uh, much less make the top ten. Uh, I mean, why not the city of Hebron? It, it played a much more important role <clears throat> in the beginning of Jewish history. Why not there? Uh, why not Jerusalem? Wouldn't that have been a more elegant choice? Jerusalem was the center of religious and civil life in Israel. Right? The magnificent temple of Solomon and that of Herod was there. The royal palace, too. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find reasons to deny Jerusalem the privilege of welcoming a new king there. But Jerusalem didn't make the cut either. And then there's always Nazareth, right? A logical favorite because it was the actual home of Mary and Joseph. It was where they started out from. And so if you think about it, it offered the most inconvenience. Life could have gone on as usual for Joseph and, and for Mary and a new baby. Jesus could have been surrounded by relatives and good neighbors with no interruption in the daily flow of activity, but none of those places got chosen. And so why Bethlehem? Why Ephrathah? Uh, and why, by whichever name you call it, uh, was it so intertwined with our Lord's family? Because if you know your Bible... That locale has been the landscape where a lot of the folks in that long list that we read through together this morning have camped out. Uh, and that list of ancestors is important, even though, as I said, I know you all skip over it when you read, right? But, you know, the Holy Spirit directed and superintended its placement in Scripture as surely as he did the creation account or the story of Noah's flood or the beloved verses of John chapter 3 because it's all pointing somewhere. And more importantly, it's pointing to someone, to someone whose human ties and whose family tree 
and whose historic credentials were of the utmost importance. And for some reason, they keep turning up in this little backwater of Bethlehem. Uh, if you remember, Jacob's wife died near there, giving birth to her son, Benjamin. You can read that in Genesis 35, 19. It says, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. And just in case we didn't know, the biblical writers put in parentheses, that is Bethlehem. Uh, Naomi and Elimelech began their young family there. And it was upon Naomi's return there with her daughter-in-law that Ruth met Boaz and became his wife. The prophet Samuel went to Bethlehem to find Jesse the Ephrathite and his sons in 1 Samuel 16. And it was in Bethlehem that Samuel anointed David as king over Israel. And all of that in this tiny little slip of real estate uh, where generations came and went with no real sense of the place's actual destiny for years it's just lay there quiet and still in that deep and dreamless sleep that we sing about in the familiar Christmas carol until one night something bigger happened. Something bigger than Jacob, bigger than Boaz, bigger than Samuel, even bigger than King David. One night shepherds came to seek a babe lying in a manger. And later as Susie sang to us so beautifully, Magi came from the east led by a star and bowed to a new king. One night when the hopes and fears of all the years were concentrated in a single geographic spot. But that still leaves us with the question of why, doesn't it? Why, why there? Why Bethlehem? And I think that, that at least part of the clue is in the name itself. You remember Shakespeare asked that question in Romeo and Juliet, you know, what, what's in a name that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet? Uh, and I suppose there's an element of, of truth to that. But with all due respect to the bard, names are actually significant. Uh, and the power of names and their value has long been immortalized in prose and in poetry and in religious ceremony. And simply put, names are important, guys. They mean something. And the name Bethlehem means something. Bethlehem is Hebrew for house of bread. Dobeth for house, Lechem for bread. And Ephrathah means fruitful. So the name of Jesus' birthplace is literally House of Bethlehem, be fruitful. Which I think is significant for at least three reasons I want to share with you quickly. Uh, first, Christ was born in Bethlehem to identify with common man. Because Jesus wasn't born in the house of wealth. He wasn't born in the house of celebrity. Jesus was not born in the cultural centers of Rome or Athens or Alexandria, but in, the, in Bethlehem in the house of bread and church. Fruit and bread were and are two of life's most common elements, aren't they? Who here doesn't have some fruit and bread in their house? Right? You all do. But it was even more common in Jesus' day. If, if people then served meat, it was always a side dish. Bread was always the main dish, followed closely by the dried fruit from olives and figs and pomegranates. And everybody had access to those things, whether they were rich or poor. And God wanted his son likewise to be available to all people indiscriminately. That's the reason Jesus' birth was announced to shepherds and not to King Herod. That's the reason his cradle was a manger, it was an animal feeding trough in a stable. Because you see, you don't have to be rich to know him. Your pantry cupboards don't have to be overflowing to merit his presence. You don't have to be well-known or well-connected to get close to him because Jesus came not for the popular people, or the religious elite, or the self-righteous, or this is where Rick passed out yesterday, so hold on to this, you guys. He didn't come for the people who thought that they were all right just as they were, but for the ones who were painfully aware of their needs. The everyday common person, 
just like you and me. And God didn't send His Son just to meet our physical needs either. He came for our spiritual needs too. That's the second reason that Christ was born in Bethlehem into that fruitful house of bread, and it was to satisfy our spiritual hunger. That's why Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And, you know, that's a good comparison to our Lord because he satisfies and nourishes and strengthens us physically just as bread and fruit does physically. But, you know, sadly, too many people are still eating at the wrong table. That's why the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 52, uh, why spend money on what is not bread and labor on what does not satisfy? He says, listen, listen to me and eat what's good and you'll delight in the richest of fare. He's saying, stop searching for satisfaction in things that can't ever satisfy you. But how often do we Christians waste our time and our efforts on things that don't bring true satisfaction? You know, especially at the holidays, right? There's always a desperate craving for the things of this world. And don't mishear me. Material things are not bad in and of themselves. Uh, material wealth is a blessing. As long as we remember that the things of this world are worthless when seen in the light of eternity, and that none of them will ever truly satisfy the deepest longings of our soul because true satisfaction can only come in living for Jesus Christ. And if you do that, he promises to fill us up. That's why Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. One Christian author said of this, he said, We all get hungry and food is a delight to be enjoyed but life is filled with hungers that go beyond empty stomachs. And he continues, you know, you've all heard the expression, you can give a man a fish or you can teach him how to fish. But Jesus would likely have added that even the most successful fishermen have hungers that can't be filled at the end of a hook. Because with all of our consuming, there comes a point when no food or no pleasure can fill or satisfy the deepest hungers of our soul that we experience. We are all still desperately empty. And church, that's where Jesus Christ comes along telling us that he's the bread of life and that he brings the fruits of the Spirit. And both of those metaphors are significant because they speak not just to taking Jesus in, but actually having him as an integral part of our lives. As in that old saying, you know, you are what you eat. Right? Think about it, right? Food, food becomes metabolized into our physical bodies and we need Jesus' presence to be absorbed into our spiritual lives. Because Christ is all that the souls of men and women need for spiritual satisfaction. And the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, gives us the confidence that God desires to fill us with himself and to make us fruitful in his kingdom. And, and lastly and quickly, Christ was born in Bethlehem in that fruitful house of bread to show us that each of us must receive him as a gift from heaven. Uh, just like God gives the fruit of the vine and the grain of the field. So by 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. A church of righteousness that comes from God and not from us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And writing on that idea, Pastor John Piper said, God chose a stable so that no innkeeper could boast that he chose the comfort of my inn. God chose a manger so that no woodworker could boast he chose the craftsmanship of my bed. 
He chose Bethlehem so that no one could boast the greatness of our city constrained the divine choice. And he chose you and me freely and unconditionally to stop the mouth of all human boasting. And so that the deepest meaning of the littleness and insignificance of Bethlehem is that God does not bestow the blessings of the Messiah, the blessings of salvation on the basis of our greatness or on the merit of our achievement. He does not elect cities or people because of their prominence or grandeur or distinction. No, he chooses He chooses freely in order to magnify and glorify his own mercy. And he closes the quote by saying, we get the joy, he gets the glory. We get the joy and he gets the glory. The glory of the Messiah born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the glorious king of kings whose presence entered the lowly house of bread, just like the presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle in the Old Testament. A Messiah who, like manna, came down quietly in the night and blessed the land with the proof of God's loving provision. Just like the the fruits of Canaan so bountiful it took two men to haul it between them as they carried a sweet fragrance of the promised land home with them. And all of those things, beckoning the people of God to turn their attention to him and away from the darkness of this world so that we can reach others with the gospel of his love. It is why Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the fragrance from death to death. To other, the fragrance from life to life. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And brothers and sisters, not just in this holy season of Christ's first coming as a little baby, it's also time for us to remind ourselves and to remind the peoples of this world that he is coming again. Amen, somebody. Coming in glory to dwell with his people. And just as heaven's angels heralded Christ's birth, they were also there to reassure us of the future event as well. That's why we read in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. And men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus, the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go. The same Jesus, not another one, the same one is coming again. The same Jesus born in Bethlehem. The same Jesus acclaimed by angels. The same Jesus sought out by shepherds. The same Jesus who welcomed kings. The same Jesus who grew up and lived for God and died for us, died for our sins on Calvary, is now reigning in heaven. He will return in a visible, recognizable, resurrected body. And church, when that day comes, we will truly be able to say with David in Psalm 132, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Not not at, at the physical beauty of a sacred tent. Not in the magnificent glory of a temple not in the historic marvel of the church of the nativity in Bethlehem or even in our tiny little sanctuary, but in the glory of the Father that dwells within it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, the aroma of salvation, the bread of life, the fruit of heaven, the word made flesh for us at Christmas. Amen. Will you pray with me? Precious Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be that among us today, that the sweet aroma of your presence, that the beauty of your gospel 
uh, that has been preached would now be revealed to hearts, uh, that it would open eyes, that it would unstop ears. We ask, Lord, that you would go forward today, and if there's even one among us that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, uh, that you would just be so uh, present in their heart and mind that they would see the glory of your kingdom uh, and, and just fall on their knees through irresistible grace. We ask you, Father, to uh, be with us as we go about this week, that we would share the love of the gospel with those around us, and that you would bless all the work of our hands as we seek to extend your kingdom and give glory to your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.